Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and the host. I'm so glad that you could make it. What a beautiful week it's been. We've got so many things to talk about, but before we get started, would you mind letting me tell you about my website for free resources? You can take advantage of it by going over to thelastsymptom.com. While you're there, if you're so inclined to leave me a donation to support my overall body of work, you're my voice crack there. If you're so inclined to leave me a donation to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast, you can do that right from thelastsymptom.com. Also, if you're interested in a one-on-one intimate conversation with me, you can schedule that right from thelastsymptom.com as well. Personally, I love mugs. There's something really personal about the mug you drink your coffee in every morning. Uh, You know, a mug is just one of those things that can really become a part of your life. And I mean, as corny as it it might sound, it's easy to develop an attachment (laughs) to such things. So I have here with me several mugs. I have them here just to illustrate how I've developed emotional attachments. They have real meaning for me. So let me show off a few of these mugs. Not this one. This is my camp mug. This mug here, and I've got, uh, this is birch bark that I got while I was out in the woods. I use that birch bark to start fires. But uh, this mug here is uh, from Hawaii. A girlfriend of mine, an ex-girlfriend, was in Hawaii, and she brought this mug back for me. So this mug reminds me of her. Very fond of her. And uh, now I'm very fond of this mug. I don't get to see her no more. So that's that. Uh, This mug here was given to me by, and those of you just listening, you can't see the mugs, obviously, but uh, I can describe them to you. It's kind of red, yellow. It's got the handle broke off of it. It's got cats on it. Uh, You know, it's not my favorite to look at, but the reason I I like this so much is that I was working with a family uh, at the hospital, uh, a Guatemalan family, and they're dad and husband had fallen off a roof and broke his neck. And so he was a paraplegic. And uh, I worked with them for months after that accident uh, as their interpreter. After developing such a tight relationship with them after some time, uh, they gave me this mug as kind of a thank you. And so this mug obviously always reminds me of them. So I keep that in my workspace. I don't drink out of it. I just, I just use it to look at and remember them. 
Uh, now this last one here. This is just a cheap mug. When you look at it, it's not, there's nothing special about it. In fact, it was probably mass produced. It says Becker Insurance Agency on it. Uh, this is a mug uh, that I had with my ex-wife, and I drank coffee out of this all the time when I was living with my ex-wife and we were still married. In fact, her mother, my, my ex-mother-in-law, worked at this Becker Insurance Agency. <laughs> And that's where we got the mug. And uh, obviously, I, I still have very fond memories of my ex-mother-in-law, as well as my ex-wife, and my life from back then. So uh, that's why I keep this mug around. And again, it just uh, I don't drink out of it no more. I just keep it in my on a shelf there, and uh, it reminds me of, of that special time in my life. Now... On to today's topic. What has been the most difficult thing for me personally of having had borderline personality disorder? So obviously I don't have borderline personality disorder anymore, but what is the most difficult thing in my life now from having had the disorder in the past? Well, one morning as we were leaving some remote diner after a big breakfast, we were all geared up, ready to drive out to the trailhead for an epic backpacking excursion along the famed West Rim Trail of Pennsylvania. It's so remote, this trail. West Rim Trail, Pennsylvania. You should look it up later. Beautiful. You don't have to deal with other people, that's for sure. But you do have to deal with things like porcupines, <laughs> skunks, uh, bears. All these things were a memorable part of this trail that I did. Anyway... As we were leaving this remote diner and we were going out there to the trailhead, my 40-year-old friend, Jim, stopped before we got into his Honda SR, uh, CRV and he took a look at me. He and his wife, I remember, called this CRV, this, this Honda that they drove, they called it the juice. So anytime we'd go anywhere, they'd say, hey, let's take the juice. Before we got into the juice, with a bit of hesitation and shame, Jim looked at me and he said, you know, it's sort of comforting to think that if things are ever too bad in life, one always has the option of ending it. I, I was at a loss when he said that. But I listened non-judgmentally as he stammered along to flush out this thought that he was having that day. What I did know at that time really well is that my friend was dealing with some major depression. In his life during that period of time, his father had been on a really destructive path with alcoholism, and it had just hit critical mass out of nowhere. I remember uh, being at parties with his dad. And just big, jolly guy. I tell you, he reminded me of, uh, you ever see the, the movie Tommy Boy? Reminded me of uh, Chris Farley's father in that movie. I can't remember the actor's name. But anyway, that's exactly who his dad reminded me of. Anyway, his dad was really on this alcoholic bend. You know, he was really involved in a lot of destructive behaviors during that time. So one day he was this jolly guy that enjoyed a drink or three at gatherings. And then the next... 
He had run his family away. He had lost the job that he'd been at for something like 30 years. He was selling off all of their their belongings, all their possessions, and uh, was at risk of losing the family home, which they'd had for 40 years. So no doubt the stress of uh, watching his mother deal with this, as well as, you know, his own profound worry for his dad, I'm sure was a major factor in Jim's depression. This backpacking trip that we were about to go on was going to be Jim's first backpacking trip. I had been trying to convince him into going with me for uh, like a year or something like that. And finally he had relented He got himself a backpack and all this stuff and was going to go into the woods with me for a while. I thought that the experience would be good for him. And yet for the past two weeks, and I'm not making this up, all Jim had done was stew in thoughts of every possible and impossible danger that we might encounter in the woods. It had gotten to a point where he was losing sleep. And I remember that around this time, there had been a story in the news of a woman whose face had been torn off by a pet chimpanzee. You might remember this story. I'm sure it made international news. And in fact, that lady made news uh, later because she, she got a face transplant. Jim, irrationally obsessed about this story, about this chimpanzee and this woman, day in and day out, and he imagined these scenarios of what if some kind of freak thing like this happens on this backpacking trip we're going on, and he ends up losing his face or ends up having his face ripped off by a bear, you know, who knows what. So now here we are at the diner. We've just had breakfast. We've walked out of the diner, and Jim has just blurted out that he's entertaining these suicidal thoughts. All of the extenuating factors I just spelled out for you went through my mind. While I was listening to him talk, I quietly put his completely irrational ruminations into context. I remember this very specifically. I felt compassion for him. At no time did I think, well, this is Jim. This, this is just Jim. This is part of his natural personality. No, I didn't think that. Listening to him talk crazy like this, I was able to separate what he was saying from he himself. In other words, I knew that Jim, the Jim I know, would not talk like that. I knew that there was more happening there. I knew it wasn't him talking. Rather, stress and depression were exerting power over him and causing him to say and think these crazy things that were completely alien to his natural character. By the time that I myself discovered that I had, that I was dealing with an emotional disorder, which was a year or so later, now that I was going through my own crisis, Jim had already recovered from his depression. So those, those crazy thoughts, the depression, the stress, those things were now behind him. And he was 
pretty much back to full emotional stability and health. One of the most unbelievably painful experiences of my life has been that when Jim become aware of my crazy behaviors while I was going through my own emotional crisis, it apparently never occurred to him to grant me the same understanding and compassion that I once felt for him coming out of the diner, thinking those crazy thoughts and talking that crazy way. Felt compassion for him in that instance. But when I myself found myself uh, in my borderline personality disorder crisis, and I was doing crazy things and acting out of character, apparently it never occurred to Jim or a lot of people to grant me the same understanding and compassion as I once felt for him. His, his default reaction was not, wow, this is irrational behavior. This is not how Brian would behave. There has to be something at play here that I don't yet understand. So it still hurts that by default, everybody, but especially Jim, because of this very experience I had with him, it hurts that he didn't consider my actions in context, in the context of living with an unrecognized disorder, which, just like him only a year earlier, was affecting my rational thought and causing me to behave in ways that were inconsistent with my character. Now, in my case, when I allude to the things I did, I'm talking about cheating on my wife, and there were other things involved, you know, blowing through money, compulsive spending, compulsive sex, compulsive cheating, compulsive lying. Uh, these were all things that really are inconsistent with my character in that setting, especially, contrary to my values at the time. And yet, as far as he and all my other friends seem to be concerned, from their perspective, I could have simply chosen not to do the things I had done. <laughs> so for me, this was and continues to be the most difficult aspect of borderline personality disorder. That, uh, you know, even though I no longer have it, it's the inability of others to understand and thereby feel compassion. And, uh, you know, my responsibility is to simply accept this reality. Again, the, the hardest thing for me about having had borderline personality disorder is the inability of others to understand and uh, set aside some compassion. So you're thinking that cheating on your wife's a pretty outrageous thing, and you're right. It is an outrageous thing. But let me ask you this. Is cheating on your wife more dramatic or more outrageous than suicide? This is something I've thought about uh, a lot over the years. When Jim was going through his crisis and he was talking about killing himself, as outrageous as that is, there's nothing more outrageous than that. Wouldn't you agree? Nothing is more outrageous than somebody doing that, killing themselves. And yet, if he had done it, and even when he was talking about doing it, 
I had no trouble whatsoever separating that from him and feeling compassion for him. The reason I bring that up is because, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around the idea that the friends and family of a loved one who kills himself or herself, they will very easily look past the complete insanity of that act, and they will, with no trouble whatsoever, acknowledge the pain that was behind it, the pain and the distorted thinking that was behind it, and they'll feel compassion and then extend understanding toward that person. Oh, he was just in so much pain. We had no idea. He was sick. He'd have never done something like this otherwise. It was not him. This was not him. Yet, because many of the destructive behaviors that people with uh, some emotional disorders engage in to dull their pain, because it falls into a classification of what others might consider fun, we don't often get this compassion, do we? So, me uh, having sex with other women. You know, the wife doesn't look at that and go, oh, the pain he must be enduring. (laughs) Oh, he... He maxed out our credit card. He's got a bunch of new stuff. Oh, the pain behind that. Oh, I I did not realize he was dealing with so much pain. Poor guy. (laughs) That That don't happen. But if I kill myself, oh, the pain he must have been dealing with. You know, what is more dramatic? Which behavior is more dramatic? So what do you think causes a person with borderline personality disorder or with any emotional disorder to act out their compulsions? It's the same, the exact same type of unrecognized pain that people who commit suicide are dealing with that that drove them to do what they do. The only difference is that one person tries to stop the pain with suicide And the other person tries to distract himself from the pain or herself with outrageous, destructive behavior. Both people, both keep their burden secret and both carry out their compulsion in secret, believing that they can't confide in anybody. Have you thought about that? When a person commits suicide, there's all kinds of deceit involved in that, isn't there? When a person commits suicide, there is tons of deceit. I I know a guy, a guy that I really admired from uh, Huntington, West Virginia. He uh, was a father to two children, beautiful wife. One day he says, I'm going to go visit my family. So he's visiting his family in Huntington and uh, goes to see a movie with his sister and his mom. And after the movie, he says, uh, here, let's swing by the hardware store over here. So they take him over to the hardware store, and he goes in and he buys rope. And they said, what's that for? All a project I'm working on. He goes home to his beautiful wife, and uh, the next morning he gets up real early, and his beautiful wife rolls over in bed, and she says, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to go out and work on the car. 
So she wakes up uh, hours later. She walks downstairs to make coffee and, you know, start her day. And she steps right over the suicide note that he's left on the stairs for her. She goes out. She doesn't see him working on the car. Walks around the back of the house, and there he is, hanging. Now, think about all of the lies involved there. The burden that he left on his sister and mother, having bought the rope that he was going to kill himself with while he was with them. The lie that he was working on a project. The lie the following morning that uh, he was going to go out and work on the car, and that's why he was getting up early. I, I bring this up because, for some reason, people have no problem. And I'm not saying that they should have a problem with it. I'm saying, obviously, you know, when a person does something like that, uh, it's not rational. And so, obviously, stress and depression, you know, is taking its toll. The person is uh, not able, during that time, to think clearly. And so they do some really out-of-character things. But I'll tell you this, that uh, that man, his name was John. He was kind of like an uncle to me. When I was a teenager, I got into tr to real trouble over something. And um, he, he took me aside because he was kind of like a, a friend to me, a kind of a mentor or a guide. And uh, he, he took me aside and he said, Brian, always tell the truth, even when it hurts. Tell the truth, especially when it hurts. Tell the truth. It's this man who later lived this lie, didn't let anybody know what he was thinking, didn't let anybody in about what he was thinking. So he had no possible way of having his thoughts challenged, who lied to his wife, lied to his mother and his sister, and killed himself. The man who gave me this, this gold nugget of advice, which, um, you know, I've never forgotten and uh, I still value very much. But my point is, I'm able to look at what John did and all of his lies and deceit and the secrets and understand. I'm able to put it in the context and feel compassion for the man. Did I ever get that same kind of compassion? <laughs> no, I sure didn't. And I still don't in the minds of those people. You know, they're always going to remember me uh, as they remember me. They're always going to remember me as the guy who did all those terrible things. A out of context, th they're never going to go ahead and put all those things into the context of that that was not Brian, because we know Brian, and he wouldn't do that. So there must be something else going on here. It boggles my mind that more people don't see the conflict in their willingness to view one thing more compassionately than the other. They're more accepting of their loved one killing himself or herself than they are of them cheating or of them maxing out a credit card or of them having other compulsive behaviors, you know, like getting a new pet every four weeks. <laughs> you, you know, we could go on and on about the, the symptoms of emotional unhealth, but I'm just simply saying people are much more 
understanding and compassionate toward suicide, which is the most dramatic symptom of emotional unhealth that could that possibly exists. They have tons of compassion for that, but they don't have compassion for all the other much less severe symptoms. And, you know, when I talk about cheating, I'm not talking about any form of cheating. I'm talking about uh, the cheating that's born from an uncontrolled compulsion that the person suffering has no possible way of immediately understanding. The pain behind these things, in many cases, is the same pain. The same pain that is causing the compulsion to cheat, it's the same pain that leads other people to suicide. The control it exerts over people is the same control. The only difference is the behavior that it ultimately translates into for relief. And that reminds me of an Avid Brothers song. They have a song, it's called Part From Me. And this kind of expresses my feelings around that time. It says, part from me, the lyrics go. I would not dare take someone in love with me where I'm going. A part you'll see how true it is and how back then it possibly was impossible for you or me to know it. That's from the Avid Brothers. That's how I felt at the time. I never wanted to be in the situation I found myself in to put my marriage home, job, and everything I cared about in jeopardy. To lose all my friends. You know, I knew this would be the result, and yet I could not stop myself. In fact, during this crisis, I felt like a prisoner in my own body, being pushed along by forces I could not possibly understand. It wasn't rational behavior. It wasn't me. So I've forgiven myself, whether I'm ever forgiven by others or not. But what I do crave is for my memory, my reputation, my dignity to be restored in their minds. I crave for them to acknowledge that my behaviors from that time and who I am as a person are not one and the same thing. In defense of people who have never experienced anything like borderline personality disorder, and particularly a major crisis brought on by subconscious attempts to suppress such a thing for too many years, there's a very fine line between a sufferer using the disorder as an excuse, which I'm not doing, and a sufferer simply desiring to have their behaviors fairly considered in context, which... Uh, you know, is what I yearn for. If I had known sooner that I had borderline personality disorder, I would have done all I could do to understand it. I could have and would have prevented all the pain and feelings of betrayal that I caused others, but I didn't know and I could not have known during that window of time in my life. The possibility of knowing did not exist for me until I had gone through the very crisis that caused these people all their hurt. You know, the, that, the natural consequences of that crisis is what led me 
eventually to identifying what I was dealing with and uh, understanding it and then fixing it. All I ever wanted from them was compassion and understanding of the same nature that I once gave Jim outside of that diner in uh, northeast Pennsylvania to care genuinely enough to look through the disorder and see the person inside me. The voluntary willingness to view me in fair context within the extenuating circumstances. And this is something I'll never be given for all that happened back then. So that is and continues to be the most complicated thing or the the worst part of having had borderline personality disorder. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. We've reached the, the encouraging finale. Did you know that every beautiful experience you've ever had goes on for forever? This is true because of light. The images of everything we do here on Earth gets recorded by light, and then that light travels through the universe for forever. If we were on a spaceship that's five light years away, for example, and we turn and we look at Earth with a super powerful telescope, do you know what we'd see? see what's happening now. No, because the light that's right now reflecting off of Earth won't yet reach that far in space for another five years yet. That's what a light year is. It's the distance light travels in a year. five light years away in space, we'll see what was happening five years ago, just as if it were happening now, live. So think about that. Every wonderful experience, every beautiful moment you've ever shared with somebody, even if they're long gone, the moment is still happening. It's caught in light, and it will travel the universe forever. Forever.